Go ahead, everybody, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. And if you don't, there are some scattered around the room for you on some tray tables. For those who don't know me, my name is Raymond, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's always a pleasure to not only be with you, but, but to come and to teach and, and, and to do that. We're going to be in our series called The Sermon on the Mount. We didn't make that name up. Augustine, I believe, was the first to use that term in the fourth century about this passage here in Matthew's chap- Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And uh, we've, in, we've subtitled it Gospel Cardiology because you'll, you'll see that Jesus, as he so often does, he, gets, he cuts through all the surface stuff and, and goes right to the heart. All right, so join us now, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Let me pray and then, then we'll get going. Lord, what did they do before, before they had all these microphones and everything else? We're going to have to, I guess, come back to that. Help us this morning. Help us this morning just to hear your voice. Don't let mine get in the way. Help us all to hear your voice. And teach us this morning what you meant when you said that in your eyes we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We ask that in your name, Jesus. And everybody said? Amen. So how, how does Jesus want his disciples or Christians to live in relation to all the other people in the world. Let's listen closely as Jesus answers that question for us this morning with two very familiar word pictures. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, then how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And these are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have to say this before I begin. I read a lot about salt this past week, more than, than I care to recount now. But, but there's one thing that I've been tempted more than I ever have before to, to drop an egg on our kitchen floor. Now, my wife told me this is a very bad idea. In fact, she said, I'll give you five good reasons why you shouldn't drop that egg on the floor. All right? But, but I, here's the thing. Did you know that if you pour salt on an egg that you've dropped on the floor and wait like 20 minutes, it's really easy to pick up? Some, some of you do know that, right? No, I didn't know that. Isn't that interesting? So, so here's the thing. I'm, I'm not encouraging your children to do that. Parents, please, please forgive me. But if, if something should happen on your kitchen floor this week, just remember, salt. Salt will make it better. All right? So here we go. Now, that has nothing to do with the message, but everything that comes after that does. Now, think about what you're doing when you use word pictures, right? When you use a word picture, you're taking some concept that is perhaps abstract, maybe difficult to remember, and you're trying to simplify it, right? Make it easier for people to remember. That's all Jesus is doing here. He's taking a, con- a concept that's sort of abstract. Here's how Christians should relate to everybody else in the world. And what he's doing is he's giving us a picture that will simplify it for us and make it easier to remember. And here's what that means for me as, as I preach or teach. I, the last thing I want to do this morning is reverse all that and complicate this for you again. Right, so here's, here's in a nutshell what Jesus is saying. His disciples, Christians, 
are meant to have a particular kind of influence on the world. And that influence is similar to the kind of impact that salt and light have when people use them. And you'll have to remember that back in the first century, they didn't have refrigerators, freezers, let alone artificial preservatives. So what they would do is they would actually use salt as a preservative, not just to flavor food, right? So if, if you had meat and you wanted to keep it from spoiling overnight, what you would do is you would actually put enough salt on it. And that salt would, would in a sense, it would interact with the bacteria and it would, take the, it would take the water out of the bacteria. It would dehydrate it. That would keep the bacteria from growing. And then that in turn would slow down the process of corruption and decay. And it seems to be that what Jesus is saying on one level is that he intends for his disciples, for Christians, to have that same kind of impact on the world. All right? That he wants us, as we live our lives together, to significantly decrease sin's spoiling effect on this world that God loves so much. And as light, he wants us to help people to see things that they would never be able to see, particularly about God, unless Christians were there living in this world before them and with them, showing them who God really is and how wonderful he is. And that, in a nutshell, is what Jesus is trying to say. So all of that was in less than five minutes, and now I have a problem because I have to find a sermon to give you, right? I can't just say go and, and do this and be this, but, but in a sense, if I had to, maybe we could just stop there. And you guys know you, the Holy Spirit would help you from there. But let's get some more help. What is Jesus really saying when he talks to us here about salt and light? And with the rest of our, with the rest of our time, I want to do two things. First, I just want to go back and, and look at verses 13 and 16. And in each of those verses, there's one thing that's very easy to misinterpret. And if you misinterpret it, you might even think that it's contradicting something else that's taught in the Bible. So I want to clear those up first. And then the second thing I want to do is I want to just go back and go through it verse by verse to show you some truths that I think Jesus wants to emphasize for us. And wherever it's possible, I also want to draw out of those truths one implication for our lives and our ministry to others. Does that sound good? All right, so first, let's start in verse 13, and let's clear up a very common misconception about what Jesus is saying. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And some people read this and they think to themselves, there it is, Jesus is teaching that Christians can lose their salvation and once they do, they can never get it back. And after that, it just looks really, really bad. In fact, they could think that Jesus' statement about being thrown out and trampled under feet is an allusion to eternal condemnation and separation from God. I will describe it that way in light of present company, right? Now, I want to show you that that is not what Jesus is saying. You see, he's using figures of speech here, and you have to be careful, because I know some of us some of us, I'm, I, I would probably say I'm not as prone to read something like that that way. But some of us, we have a very sensitive conscience and we're quick to beat ourselves up and we're very quick to think that the next mistake we make, God's just going to get rid of us. And you know who you are. You don't have to raise your hands or anything, right? But this is not what that's saying at all. In fact, in fact, Jesus is using figures of speech here, and what you want to do when you're reading the Bible, let's say you're on your own at home and you're reading your Bible, which I hope you're doing, it's a great thing. If you, if you haven't done it last week, do it this week, right? But you're at home, you're reading your Bible, and you come across something like this, it scares you, 
and you want to get a right understanding of what it means, well, what you want to do is, is ask yourself this question. <clears throat> Instead of jumping to the conclusion that this means we have no security in our relationship with God, just say, you know, is there anywhere in the Bible where Jesus or one of the other biblical writers where Jesus actually addresses the issue of my security with God in clear words? Not in figures of speech, but in clear language that we can all understand. And the, the answer to that question is yes, there is. Look at John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 37. We're going to read verses 37 through 40, and I want you to notice something. Jesus says here, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will, what's that word? Never cast out. So, so far, we have people being given by God the Father as a gift to God the Son, Jesus Christ. Did you know that if you're a Christian, God the Father gave you to his son, Jesus? Before we get to anything you did in response to anything else, something happened between the members of the Godhead. God the Father gave you as a gift to his son, Jesus. So, so God the Father gives people to Jesus and all that the Father gives to Jesus will, there's no question about it. It's not like they debate it and think about it and say, I don't know, will I come or not? No, they will. They will come to Jesus. If you're given by God the Father in this way, you will come to Jesus. Do you see that? Do you see the language? Look, look at the Bible again, because I know, I know that idea is a little bit different than what you sometimes hear, and, and it probably goes against certain theological ideas that, that we embrace from time to time. But... I just want you to read the Bible with me this morning. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And then Jesus goes on. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And here's why. Verse 38. Because I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what is that will? Well, he tells us in the next sentence, doesn't he? And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Keep going, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. So God the Father gives us to Jesus. Jesus will never cast us out. He will not lose us. So, so the reason you don't lose your salvation is because Jesus won't lose you. Do you see that? He can't lose you. I will not lose anything of all that the Father has given me, but your destiny, your end is what? That he would raise you up at the last day having eternal life. And that's all I'll say about that this morning. I know that raises a ton of questions for you and what that means for other things and yourself and other people. Please come and ask us those questions. As pastors, we would love to have that conversation with you. But for now, suffice it to say that you are not being told in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, that you can lose your salvation, never get it back, and be eternally condemned. All right? So that's the first thing I want to clear up. The second thing is in verse 16. Go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. A lot of people will say, wait a minute, I actually did read my Bible, and I made it all the way to Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, which, by the way, we'll come to that in a few weeks. And there in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, it seems like it contradicts verse 16 in chapter 5, because in chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. 
for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. But in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, it sounds like Jesus wants us to let other people see our good works, right? So how can this be? Which one is it? What you want to notice here is there's no contradiction. It's the motive that's mentioned in each passage that's the key to understanding that. Do you see that? There's a different motive. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 here, Jesus encourages us to let others see our good works when our motive is for them to ultimately see God through us and to praise Him for how wonderful He is. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, He warns us against wanting people to see our good works when our true motive is for us to be seen by them so that they can praise us for how wonderful we are. Do you see the difference? And so there's no contradiction. And I point that out because a lot of people, there are about 72 of these apparent contradictions that if you talk to the person who doesn't believe in Christ and rejects the credibility of the Bible, they'll point to things like this and say, see, the Bible's no good. Jesus even contradicts himself. And I want you to be equipped to handle those kinds of conversations well as a believer so that people aren't tripped up and that we aren't tripped up by those things. All right, so those are the two common misinterpretations from this passage. And now that we've done that, let's go back. Go back to chapter 5, verse 13, and let's just walk through it verse by verse together to see what Jesus wants to emphasize for us and what that means for our lives and our ministry to others. All right, so verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, if you've ever taught this passage or you've ever heard it taught, then you know that commonly what's done is that people will focus on various uses of salt, right? How it was used back in the first century and what that has to teach us about how Jesus wants to use us in the world today. And I'm not saying that's wrong at all. I think it's a good thing to do. But what I do want to point out to you is that Jesus' emphasis here is actually not in that place, but in something completely different. He's not so much focused here on what salt does. He's interested more in what salt has. Do you see that? Look at it again. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? He's much more focused in what salt has or, or doesn't have. Now, now, the thing to remember about this is that in saying this, Jesus is trying to point us to an inherent or internal, some intrinsic quality that salt has. And if it does not have this quality, it is not good for his intended purpose in the world. And this actually happened back in that time when you were using salt as a preservative. There was a way for the crystals of salt to become clumped together, and it actually had the, the effect of diluting its effect. Right? It was no longer good for what you would try to use it for. And what you would end up doing is you would actually scatter it on the ground like we do today, and it would keep people from falling. So it would be trampled under people's feet. Right? So he's, he's taking that real-life occurrence, and he's saying, let me, let me not make a one-to-one -one correspondence with everything, but let me just use that to highlight one particular point. There is something about the disciple of Jesus Christ that is not seen by the eye. It is internal. It is intrinsic. And it is the quality that makes him or her effective for what Jesus wants to do through his church in the world. And so what Jesus seems to be saying here is that salt, if it's going to be effective, cannot simply look the part. 
it actually has to have the substance that makes it effective. You might say, well, I don't see that in the text. How do you know that Jesus is saying that? Well, if you could read the Greek, the original Greek that we translated to get this English, which, by the way, don't be impressed with this. Do you know what I, I can't read Greek, but do you know what I do? I have this Bible software, Logos Bible software, and what it does is it, it shows me all of this. I look up the English, I read it just like you, and then I, I highlight a particular word, I click on it, it says look up, and I look it up, and it tells me all the original Greek behind the word. It tells me what tense the verbs are in, it tells me all that, so I don't know anything that you don't know until I study. So everything I'm about to tell you is well within your reach if you just have the right tools and you study the Bible the same way. I, I, so I, I don't want to be a magician up here and then you're left wondering, how did he do that trick? Right? We're going to tell you our secrets here. So, so that's what I do. I just look this up and here's what it tells me. Do you see that phrase there? Salt, if you see, has lost its taste. That's one word in the Greek language. And it has absolutely nothing to do with losing anything or tasting anything. That's the best way we can translate it in its context, but what it really is saying is it's, it's the word, it's the Greek word morino, which, which is used in only two other places in the New Testament. And neither one of those references has anything to do with salt. But there is a connection between what Jesus is saying here and what he says, or what the Bible says in those other two places. So the first one is in Romans chapter 1, verse 22. Let's look at that together. In Romans chapter 1, verse 22, speaking about people who have rejected God and have exchanged the truth about God for the lies upon which they base their lives, such as God doesn't exist, or God doesn't love me, or God doesn't care what I do, lies about God, and they build their lives on that. What Jesus says here, through the, through the Holy Spirit and through the Apostle Paul, is claiming to be wise. For instance, we live in the age of the Enlightenment, right? Isn't it interesting? We're, we're in the Enlightenment, and, and yet everyone has agreed the 20th century was perhaps the darkest century in the history of the world. We killed more people, they say, in the 20th century than all the other centuries of human history combined. And this is what enlightened people do. No, that can't be the case. We, we have to be mistaken in our self-analysis, right? So claiming to be wise, they became fools. Do you see that became fools? That's the Greek word morino. It's the same word used to describe the salt losing its taste in Matthew chapter 5. In fact, we get the English word moron from that. They became fools, morino. They became morons is what Paul is saying here. And I don't say that for you to repeat it. I'm just trying to show you linguistically the connection between those things. Please don't repeat it. Uh, for some of you, let me say that again. Please don't repeat that. We don't think of people as quote-unquote morons in the cultural sense. But we do believe that some have rejected God, and in their claim to be wise in doing so, they have become, biblically speaking, fools. All right, so, morino. The other place you find this in the New Testament is in the next letter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians, right? Written by the Apostle Paul as well. And in verse 20 there, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age or the philosopher or the intellectual or the, you know, whatever? The people that, that have all the answers and stand up in the universities and say, God is a myth and here's what you should believe instead. Where are those people? Rhetorically speaking, the Apostle Paul asks, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So there it is again, made foolish, more I know. 
Now, what you want to notice here is he's not saying that, you know, it really was wisdom before God made it foolish. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is it had the appearance of wisdom, but it never actually was wisdom. It lacked the substance that makes wisdom, true wisdom, effective in people's lives. It looked the part. It sounded the part, but it wasn't with any substance. It didn't have any real wisdom to it. And, and if you go back to Matthew chapter 5 now, I think, and I'm going I'm to throw this out to you. This is actually my opinion and my take on it. But I think that's actually what Jesus is getting at when he speaks about the salt. You can't just look the part. You can't just claim, make an empty surface level claim to be a Christian like 87% of Americans. Only those who truly have the substance and the heart of being a disciple of Jesus Christ are useful in his hands and effective for carrying out his purpose in the world. And that really fits with the whole tenor of the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Because next week we'll see in verses 17 through 20, Jesus is going to compare and contrast the righteousness that the Pharisees had, the most religious people on the surface who were so concerned about keeping all of God's rules that they actually made up other rules for themselves and kept those. And he's going to contrast that to the true righteousness that is displayed in the world by Jesus and by the citizens of the kingdom of heaven which in verse 20 he says surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees. A righteousness and a kind of discipleship that doesn't simply look the part on the surface, but that actually has the substance. And that I want to submit to you this morning is Jesus' main point when he's talking about the salt. And that's why we're, we're talking about gospel cardiology, because this is about what's in the heart. So it's true that, yes, in verse 16, we have to have these works. If we're going to be effective in bringing people to Christ... We have to have these works that they can see, but at the same time, there's something internal that really makes us effective for establishing in this world the eternal kingdom of heaven as Jesus' disciples. Now, let's see what Jesus has to say then about the salt, in, or the light rather, in verse 14. Look at that again with me. You are the light of the world. And all I'm going to do from here on out is highlight just a few things and very quickly draw out an implication for our lives and our ministry together in this world, right? You are, he says, the light of the world. Now, I didn't point this out when we talked about the salt, but you see that word you? And then three times in verse 16, the word your is used. Every time you see the word you or your in this passage, it's actually plural. And all I want to say about that, the implication is when Jesus speaks to us today, He's concerned more with our collective witness as a group of people than he is with our individual witness. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Don't let, you know, don't let Satan blow it out. Now, actually, you'll see in a minute that, that Jesus is actually much more concerned about Christians putting that light under a basket than he is about Satan blowing it out. Did you catch that? We'll see that in a minute. Just stick with me. Stick with me. But in any case, it's not just about my individual light. He's speaking collectively to the church here. And I'll go, I'll go one step further, and I'll say this in terms of our, the implications for us today in the city of Richmond. He, he's thinking a lot more about our witness alongside St. Paul's Baptist Church, First Baptist Church, Third Presbyterian Church, Mechanicsville Christian Center. He's, he's thinking more about our collective witness than he is about just Redemption Hill. Does that make sense? All right, so there are going to be all kinds of ways that Jesus brings us into partnership with other believers because he's about his kingdom and not just our organization. All right, so that's one implication. Let's, let's keep looking. You, he says, are 
the light of the world, and that you is not just a plural one, it's also a distinguishing one. And I want to be careful here, but you are the light of the world implies that you are the light of the world, and there are other people who are not. All right, and Christians, look at me. Here's what I want to say. Here's my heart. I hope this comes through. I think think Christians do a lot today to be sensitive to those who are not Christians. And I think that we should do that. We should always do that. You want to be careful not to swing that pendulum too far. Because in our desire to not repel people who don't believe in Christ, sometimes we go so far that we start to say things like there's essentially no difference between us and you. You cannot get that from the Bible. You just cannot get that from the Bible. And, and I'll show you in a minute, you're not really helping people as much as you think you are when you do that. There's salt, and then there's the rest of the earth that in Jesus' mind needs the salt because it is perishing apart from him. There's a person in this room today with the Holy Spirit and the eternal life of Jesus Christ that passed through death, residing on the inside of her, and right next to her is a man that has not the Holy Spirit, and he is perishing and will do so eternally unless he receives Christ. You cannot pretend that those are the same thing. And you are not helping people when you do that. So continue to be sensitive to the unbeliever. Continue to be as compassionate as Jesus is. And we'll see in Matthew, well, we won't get to Matthew chapter 9, but you'll see how he has compassion on the crowds. But don't ever think you have to deny the distinction between the believer who's filled with the Spirit and who has the promise of eternal life, whose sins are pardoned, and the unbeliever who is currently perishing apart from Christ and will do so eternally unless he or she repents and comes to him in faith. Very important that you maintain that. Let's move on. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So right after Jesus says, here's your identity, embrace it, live according to it, the next thing he says is, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And it sounds like he's mixing metaphors here, but he's not. He's still speaking about the truth concerning the light. And here's the thing. If you're traveling on the road today and you've been, I don't know, you've been somewhere that, I don't want to offend anybody who might be from this place, so I won't name anything, but let's just say you're on the highway, and it's obvious that you're not in a big city. You're not in that area right now, right? You're on 95, and you are between cities, right? Well, when you start to approach the city, you know, right? You see lots of lights if it's at night. It's obvious to you. It stands out. It's prominent. That's the idea here. If you put a city up on a hill and travelers are coming toward it, there's no way to hide that city. They see it from a long distance. They see it coming. Here's the implication that I want to draw out for you and for me today. You cannot blend in in this world if you're really a Christian. So stop trying. Look. Look, let me... I'm trying to say this as as gently as I can. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. A Christian in this world that is perishing and that that rejects God and that turns its back on him, a true Christian in this world cannot be hidden. So all of our efforts to hide who we really are from people because we think it will scare them off are futile. You think they don't know?
Do you really think you blend in as much as you, you think you blend in? You say words that nobody else says. Like if I say redemption, most of you, that just sounds like a normal word to you. Grace. Just sounds like a normal word. When people are thinking, that's what you say before lunch. You don't blend in, so, so don't try to make yourself blend in. Just, just be what you are. And, and become increasingly comfortable with that. It cannot be hidden. Nor, watch this, here's the other thing. Nor do people, if, if they want to be sensible about this, nor do people light a lamp and then put it under a basket. No, you put it on a stand where it, it can do what it's supposed to do. That's give light to people. The lamp has already been lit, Chris DeRocco. Jesus has already put his life within you if you're a believer. He doesn't want to hide you from other people. You probably think when you're hiding your true nature as a Christian from other people that you're the kind of Christian that Jesus approves of more. But his strategy was to light you like a lamp and put you in a place where people knew that you were light and that it had the intended effect. He doesn't want to hide you. He's, he's not on your side when that's your approach. Now, let me say this. Let me say this. Some of you are thinking, what does that practically mean for me in the situation I find myself in every day? And I want to say, before you just jump out and do whatever it is you're thinking about right now, Ask, ask one of us about that or ask your friends, please, just because you may be just acting with wisdom and there is a wiser way to increase the extent to which you're letting your light shine without doing something that even Jesus would look at and say, no, actually, I, I wasn't telling you to do that, okay? So if you have questions about that, then ask. You know, maybe you're a public school teacher and you're saying, does that mean I just get up in my class and preach what, what we just preached in Matthew chapter 5 and, and forget the lesson plan? No, okay? But, but come and ask questions about that sort of thing. Does that, does that make sense? Trying to be helpful here, all right? Trying to preach and at the same time anticipate. All right. So you don't light a lamp only to hide it under a basket, but you put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. And then look at what he says next. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And here's the point. Here's the purpose. We are the light of the world. What does Jesus want to happen for other people when they encounter us? Light, light is not there to call attention to itself, but to help people see something else. So we're not here for people to leave today and say, oh, that church was great. Oh, that sermon was great. Oh, that music was great. No, we, we want people to see God. We want them to see how wonderful he is. We want them to see that he took people like us. Nothing really special about us, not when we know the truth about ourselves, but he, he took people like us and he saved us. He rescued us. He, listen, I, I just watched Extreme Home Makeover last night and I'm always taken aback by these shows, right? Because you have this family and they're doing a lot of good things for people and, and which is probably the only place where this analogy breaks down because to, to get a real gospel home makeover edition, you'd have to take somebody who's a villain, an absolute villain, and, and redo their house, right? But in any case, the show picks good people. And so there was this couple last night, and they do something that really helps people that are going through a hard time, and, and their, their house was in shambles, and they gave them a new house. And you know how it is. They say, move that bus, move that bus. Some of you wanted to say it right now, didn't you? 
move that bus, and then, then it goes, and then the reaction and the music and, and all, I mean, all the tears, right? And, and what happens is every single time I watch that show, you look at the people, and all you see from the people who receive this new house is an utter sense of just being overwhelmed with humility, and they, they, they just can't even speak because they, they say, I can't believe somebody did this for me. That's the way of the Christian in this world. See, the way of the Christian is not arrogance before the unbeliever, right? It's, it's not, hey, I made a good decision, and that's the difference between me and you. No, the, the Christian says, I cannot believe God loved me so much that he sacrificed his son on the cross. I cannot believe that my life is what it is today when I was going in that direction at full speed, and now Jesus has rescued me. I can't believe that a God who is so high above us and so perfect and so pure would treat people like us like this. I cannot believe that, and I'm so full of gratitude, I'm overflowing with it, and I just want the same for you. That's the way of the Christian. Right now, that's often not what I in the past have put out to people and not what maybe you have put out to people, but you know what? It's what we should put out to people. There's been an extreme makeover, and all we can do is be silent and overwhelmed with humility and, and with the, the idea that somebody has loved us this much, and now we're changed. Now that's, that's what this, let your light so shine. Understand that Jesus puts you in the world now as a Christian, not to condemn people, but for their benefit, that they might see things they couldn't see without you. God himself, his love for them, his mercy toward them. You're the light of the world. And I'll, I'll close with this. Do you know, you, know, you know why you're the light of the world? Do you know that Jesus actually made that statement about himself elsewhere in the Bible? It's remarkable when you know that, that he could make the same statement about his church. But in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says this. He was speaking to some people and he said, I am the light of the world. Now this is the one light that all by itself is the light of the world. And he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's when you follow Jesus, biblically speaking, that the light of the world is transferred and you also become, as he says in Matthew, the light of the world. There's something in Jesus that makes us the light of the world. And actually, the Apostle John highlights what that is for us in John chapter 1, in verse 4, where he says, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. If you're in here this morning and you're saying, well, how, how can I be, along with Jesus' disciples, the light of the world, to help other people see what they were always meant to see and enjoy? God himself, a right relationship with him through Jesus Christ. How, how can that be true of me? Well, the answer is very simple. There, there, is a, there is a life currently that you are without and you must receive it. The life of Jesus Christ. You must receive Jesus Christ. And the way that happens, very simply, is you receive him. You believe what the Bible says about him. That God sent him into the world as his son. That he was the only one that had never sinned against God. That he had a kind of life on the inside of him that would show itself to be over, overpowered by nothing at all, but to conquer even sin, Satan, and death. And that life is what Jesus puts into us when we believe in him. And when that life is in you, you shine like the light of the world. That's how this happens. And you cannot keep it from shining once it's in there. You may try, but it always comes back up, doesn't it? Someone else sins and their conscience is free. You sin 
and it's a whole different story. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That's the light we're called to make shine. We're called to be salt in this world. And yes, I believe to some degree that means there's, there's an internal quality that makes the, the Christian a real Christian. And that has to be there. It can't just be about our social programs and, and what we're doing to, to, I don't know, to help people out of poverty or what we're doing to fix somebody's lawn or that sort of thing. Anybody can do that. What Jesus is talking about here is stuff that only his disciples can do because his life is in them. And that is actually help people see that they are separated from God, going to perish eternally without Christ, and that they see now that God loves them, that sent his son to remove that from them, and he is offering them a full pardon and the promise of eternal life through the gospel. And when you hold that gospel out to them, they have every bit the opportunity to receive his grace that you and I have. And that's what we're talking about doing here. So let's be salt, let's be light. Notice he said you are, you don't have to try too hard. Did you catch that? Y'all don't need the right strategy to be salt and be light. Look, any more than after you put salt on food, you need to tell it to make it taste different. Just be salt. Be who you are. Don't hide it. Let it shine. Let's pray. Lord, I trust I've said enough, and so I want you to speak now to hearts. There, I'm, I'm sure there are people here this morning and they're wondering, am I, am I just a nominal Christian, a, a Christian in name only? Do I just look the part, but deep down in my heart, I'm far from God. I know it, God knows it, and maybe a few other people know it. I'm asking that you would change that this morning right now. And for the rest of us, Lord, perhaps we've been trying our best to hide who we truly are, ashamed to some degree of who you have made us for the world, And I want you to encourage us who are Christians to embrace the fullness of our identity. Not just that we're sinners who contribute to the problem and the chaos in the world through our sin, but that in your eyes and by your grace, we are actually part also of the solution. uh, And that we can't be ashamed of that. Help us to embrace that as well. And Lord, I ask that you would do all of this through your spirit. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.